0: Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Tim Houlihan
1: and I'm Mary Califf. Behavioral Grooves is the podcast that explores applications of behavioral science that will help you find your groove in work and home life with insights from authors, researchers and practitioners.
0: And for our regular listeners, I should let them know that Kurt had some travel plans that inadvertently got in the way of our interviews with a couple of guests, today's included. So our producer, Mary Califf, was kind enough to jump in and keep our obligations with our guests. So thanks very much for jumping in, and thanks for joining me here today, Mary.
1: It's my pleasure, Tim. I'm really excited about this episode because I really connected with the book and with the author's writing style Dr. Vanessa Patrick is a professor of marketing and the associate dean for research at the Bauer College of Business at the University of Houston.
0: Yeah, she happens to be friends with both Mike Ahern, who was a guest on Behavioral Grooves way back on episode 18, and who is also a fantastic researcher in the world of incentives, and Raghu Bamaraju, with whom I collaborated with on a research paper he wrote a few years ago about incentives, and who earned his PhD at the University of Houston.
1: It just shows how small the world of behavioral science is, Tim.
0: (laughs) I guess it is. But the real reason we wanted to speak with Dr. Patrick wasn't because she's friends with our friends, but it's because of her latest book, The Power of Saying No, The New Science of How to Say No That Puts You in Charge of Your Life. The book focuses on importance of learning how to say no to things that just gum up our lives.
1: I was really impressed with her description of the empowered refusal and the really personal ways she wrote in the book. The book is like my favorite combination of styles that of books that we read for behavioral grooves. It's got lovely personal stories and anecdotes. It's research based. And so the insights are really solid. And then we've got really practical tips of how to use it in our life. It was a great book.
0: I couldn't agree more. And, and on top of that, talking with Dr. Patrick was was really a joy. Like her effervescence just comes through with her comments. And we really had fun talking with her about some cool techniques to make our lives just a little bit better.
1: Yes, we did, Tim. It was a really fun conversation. So with that, listeners, we'd like you to invite the Groovers to sit back with an ice cold glass of No, I Don't. And enjoy our conversation with Dr. Vanessa Patrick.
0: Vanessa Patrick, welcome to Behavioral Grooves.
2: Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here.
0: It's our pleasure to have you here. And we're going to start with a speed round. So got to know, would you rather read a book or write a book?
2: Read a book. (laughs)
0: Been through it. There was enough of the writing, huh?
2: Absolutely. And I'm an avid reader, so I read voraciously. So reading is definitely my go-to, always, anytime kind of activity. Outside
0: of academia, what do you like to read?
2: Oh, I read mostly novels and historical fiction, murder mysteries. Oh, wow. <laughs> a little bit different than, than what you write in your books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you'll notice in the book, I tell a lot of stories. And that definitely comes from, mm-hmm. you know, just me being fascinated by storytelling and, and love uh, learning things through the mm-hmm. books that I read.
0: Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So
2: whenever I want to read a subject, I very often will delve into novels mm-hmm. on that subject as well
0: very clever very clever thank you that's a a nugget you have a lot of
1: quotes in your book i really appreciated that you quote a lot of people and that adds Mm. a lovely little spice to the book and good nuggets anyway speed round i'm filling in kurt's shoes well by by uh over talking the speed round (laughs) so vanessa how would you rather Spend the evening of your 24th birthday? Would you prefer to sit alone in an office watching a fax machine? Or would you prefer to go out with your friends?
2: Definitely with my friends. <laughs> Unfortunately, however, that is not how I spent my oh, 24th birthday, right, as you know.
1: Right. And it's, and it's <laughs> how you open the book as your signature. I, I, yes. I'm guessing it was a pivotal moment in your life where you thought, hold on a minute. I should have said no.
2: It really was. It really was, and I and I thought about that so much moving forward mm-hmm. in my life. You know, I think I started critically analyzing the choices mm. I was making and the extent to which I was making good choices based mm. on that moment.
0: That's fantastic. It it, it is interesting how uh, single events can have a. Profound influence on our behaviors really and how can. we view the world. Okay, third speed round question: Is it better to start a, re- a refusal with "I don't" or "I can't"? I don't. And, and tell us why that is.
2: Yeah. So this is this is the core research that forms that the book is centered entirely around the idea of empowered refusal, which is at the end of the day that our words matter and how we frame our language in communication matters. And so when we use language like I don't, I never, I always, it comes across as a very firm, determined stance. You come across as in the driver's seat of your own life. And I think that that is so important, not only to communicate to others, but also in self-talk, to, communi- to communicate with yourself. And so the work on empowered refusal is really about contrasting the words I don't versus I can't and showing that when you use the words I don't, you come across a strong and at choice and you're able to communicate that this decision stems from who you are, mm. your authentic self, and people are less likely to give you pushback mm. when you do that.
1: Great advice. Love it. So, last speedrun question. On the same theme, is it easier to say no to your family and friends or is it easier to say no to a complete stranger?
2: Well, it depends how close those family and friends are. (laughs) So, Uh So... What I show in my work is that there is something called the acquaintance trap. It's easy for us to say no to a complete stranger. It's also easy for us to say no to people who are very close to us. Friends and family with whom we have a strong social, strong bond, because we are not worried about that bond breaking Mm -hmm. anytime soon. It is the vast majority of people with whom we have weak social ties, who we want to impress, who we want to be friends with, that we struggle with saying no to.
0: Yeah, beautifully said. You know, I'd like to go back to, I want to spend just a little bit more time So that our listeners get a good foundation on the concept of empowered Mm -hmm. refusal, because this is central to the thesis of the book, right? It's not just about saying no. Anybody can literally just say no. But what differentiates no from an empowered refusal? And why is it important?
2: So empowered refusal is a no that stems from your identity. It stems from you looking inwards and recognizing for yourself why it is so important for you to say no to this opportunity or this ask. When you look inwards and you identify the values, priorities, preferences, and beliefs that are driving that decision, and you communicate that based on your decision looking inwards, you, and you use words like "I don't," like "I don't take the elevator when I take the sta- when I can take the stairs. I don't take work calls between six and eight in the evening because that's family time. I don't touch my phone while I'm driving. These are your way of operating in the world. And when you use that sort of language, you get very little pushback. And so a no that stems from your identity is a much more empowered no.
0: I love that, actually. I I think that those are great illustrations because it's so easy. It's so common for us to say, I don't take the stairs. Uh, That just rolls right off our tongue. But but in refusing someone to say, I don't want to do that, or I don't don't have time to do that. Yes. There's a, you know, I I scored higher than 20. Okay. (laughs) I'm just going to say, I took the quiz. (laughs) Maybe we we should talk a little bit about the quiz. But... I think that there is sort of this natural part of being human, where I mean, it's in our DNA to at least be a, feel like we're appreciated by the tribe. Right.
2: That's why that two letter word no is so hard for people because we are social creatures and we want to we want to engage with people in a way that is socially appropriate and that we are liked and that we are part of this group. And I define no, just saying no in general. As a socially dispreferred response, because right. whenever anyone asks you for something, a favor, they invite you to go somewhere, they want you to say yes. Mm. That's mm. why they asked you. <laughs> and so it's very hard for to, to to kind of refuse that in a social mm. context. But when you stop looking outwards and you start looking inwards and you start recognizing that there is a trade-off and that when we say yes to something, we are saying no to something else, then it becomes really salient that it is important for us to say no, a purpose-driven no, a no that comes from uh, us so that we can spend our time and energy doing things that are meaningful to us, essentially. I want
1: to talk a little bit about the reluctant yes. You talk about the reluctant yes in the book because we've all, I mean, it's not even the case of we've all been there. We're probably there every day saying yes to something, but in reality, we're on the fence. We could say yes, we could say no, it's a decision. And as you know, humans find it hard to make decisions. We like shortcuts. And so you talk about the reluctant yes, but I it made me think of Dan Pink's work. He talks about he's written a book on regrets. And sometimes the things, oftentimes the things we regret are regrets of omission versus commission. So the things we don't do are the big things that we regret. Is, is there a time where we should say yes? rather than no. And how do we make those decisions? Because I think
2: that's the tough area when we're sitting on the fence. It's so funny that you asked that because just because I do research on, on saying no, that doesn't mean yes. I don't say yes. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> you know, I, I actually had someone uh, say, you said yes, you're the queen <laughs> of no. I'm like, uh, that is so funny because, you know, it's, it's really important to say mm-hmm. yes to the mm-hmm. things that matter. And no Mm -hmm. to the things that don't. And so when you're talking about things that matter, that are meaningful, that are aligned with your purpose, that are going to create value, then by all means say yes. And so I have a two-by-two framework in the book to help people decipher Mm. the ask. And all of those four quadrants do not point to all no decisions, there are two quadrants where you should say no because it doesn't make sense for you to mm-hmm. do those asks. And then there are two quadrants where you actually do say yes because those, those yeses either valuable to the other person or and or worthwhile for you to engage in.
0: Maybe this, maybe the power of yes is your next book.
2: <laughs> Shonda Rhimes actually wrote a book called uh, something like the power of yes. So, so I think that's taken. <laughs>
3: Rats. Rats. Okay.
2: Rats.
0: That, that's too bad. You mentioned Jonah Berger in the book. You give, you mm-hmm. praise him. He's, he's been on the podcast a couple of times. Zoe Chance, I just have to do a couple shout-outs. Zoe Chance, Dolly Chug, um, Uh you hit some of sort of our all-time favorite uh, conversations, um, and it's cool to... To see that you're sort of reflecting their work, you know, you're kind of yes, coming from from that, and so. you're all sharing in this. But Jonah was talking about how his research demonstrated that people actually like to be asked for advice. They, there's this sense of, oh, I'm going to feel smart, in, and and mm-hmm. I feel I feel special, right? And and we think that, of course, that the asker, the person who is doing the asking, has really good taste in seeking us out. Yes. Uh, but but do you think that this plays a part in us finding it difficult to say no? That that we've got this sense of well, wait a minute, I am being asked, so so they must be values, they must value something in me. Yes. Uh, you know, how, how do we deal with that?
2: So sometimes it makes complete sense that someone asks us something that we are uniquely suited to do. It is aligned with our purpose, and that we are the only ones who can do that. So, for example, as a professor, uh, you know, I'm asked to write recommendation letters. It's an Relatively easy task for me, and it can be a game changer for my students. So, those are usually asks that I say yes to Mm -hmm. because I am in a unique position to help. Mm -hmm. However, there are many asks that come our way that anyone could do, and we need to be much more discerning about our time and those circumstances. So, if someone else can do those asks, and you really do not feel that this is something that you want to do, chances are that when You say no, the person who has asked simply goes on to the next person on their list. Think about the last time you asked someone for something that anyone could do. The person says, no, you move on. It's as simple as that. And once we realize that we are not that special (laughs) and and that, you know, someone else can do it, it just becomes so much easier to say no it's very humbling to think, you know, I'm not that special in this domain. Someone else can do it.
1: <laughs> this reminds me a lot, and you referenced Linda Babcock a number of times in the book, and we've had her on the show. She's a great guest, and she co-authored. I know you know this, but just giving the listeners a bit of insight, she she co-authored a book called The No Club, and her research is fascinating. And you can uh, give it some credit as well that. She talks about non-promotable tasks and how women are more likely to take on these non-promotable tasks, as in tasks that aren't going to further your career. Don't, you know, helping with the Christmas party, sitting on the committee. Why is it? Why is exactly it that
2: women say yes to these more than men? I think in many ways women are very helpful and communal and they just want to be seen as nice and nur- and they're nurturing and they just like community and sometimes they get more they are more likely to be asked to do non-promotable tasks. In fact, uh, Linda Babcock's work says that women are 44% more likely to be asked to do non-promotable tasks and 76% more likely to say yes to those tasks compared to men who, are more, who would say uh, yes 51% exactly. of the time. So if you think about mm-hmm. those numbers, you can see that women are just taking on more work that is not aligned mm-hmm. with their purpose, not aligned with the, what their job is. And so one of the things I do, and I'm I, I teach um, women in leadership program. I'm the I'm the lead faculty for the women in leadership program at our college. And recognizing what is a, a non-promotable mm-hmm. task. And saying no to the things that are not aligned with what your career goals are is very, very important skill mm. to develop.
0: Uh, that's fantastic. It just makes me think uh, of it would be really great if you could walk us through the four types of asks, right uh, and uh, on the cost you know the cost of self benefit
2: so So I developed a framework that helps people spot the ask and categorize it so that you become really good at figuring out this is an ask I should say no to, and this is an ask that I say yes, I should say yes to. The the, uh, model essentially has two axes. The first axis is benefit to others. And the second axis is cost Mm -hmm. to me. So you can have high benefit, low benefit to others, high cost, low cost to me. And so when you think about that as a lens, then you've got low cost to you asks and high benefit to other asks. I call I call those asks, pass the salt that. asks. <laughs> so essentially, you know, there's a salt shaker sitting in front of you, you're at a dining table and someone says, could you pass the salt? And of course, you just pass the salt. It's pretty easy for you. So the recommendations, letters fall under the category of pass the salt asks, because essentially easy for me to do, game changer for the student, right? The ask that you should probably just say no to right away are what I call bake your famous lasagna asks. Now, we all know that lasagna is, of course, delicious, and perhaps you're really, really good at making them, but they are tedious and (laughs) time-consuming. And so if a friend says, hey, I'm having a potluck, why don't you bring your famous lasagna? Uh, those are ass that, you know, are not thought- thoughtful. They are ass that are just throwaway ass. Why don't you just do this? It's not going to make a big difference to the potluck party. Should you spend time when you can just go to the store and pick up a party tray? I would say those are the kind of ass where it's super, super tedious for you. And it doesn't make a difference in the world. Those are the ass you should probably walk away from. The asks which I I recommend that you say yes to after consideration and truly assessing that this is something that is unique that you can bring to the table are what I call hero's journey asks. Yes, these are asks that are hard to do for you, but they are meaningful and important. And if we fill our lives with hero's journey asks, where we spend our time doing things that are hard because hard things are things that are worth doing we can make a difference. And those hero's journey asks are the ones that you say yes to because they really can make a difference to the world.
0: Yeah. You, you brought up all these lovely terms. In the back of the book, you have a glossary of these yes, fantastic terms, including, of course, some that you've already, the, the bake your famous lasagna is one of my favorites, marigolds, <laughs> non-promotable tasks, acquaintance trap. Do you have a favorite? I love the names. My
2: favorite and something that gets everyone in my classes (laughs) giggling is walnut trees. Oh, the walnut trees.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, Okay. Right. Don't be a walnut tree. Tell
1: our listeners why you don't want to be a walnut tree. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Right. So walnut trees are those people who will not take no for an answer. They are the pushy askers who, so even if you say no, even if you say an empowered no, they still push you and say, why not? I still want it. Do it anyway. Make an exception. So, you know, there are many terms in the literature out there, you know, like jerks and assholes. Um, yeah. And, and. Uh, I decided that I was going to use my own term. So I decided to coin the term walnut tree. And it's based on the idea that walnut trees, the, the American black walnut tree actually, is this, are these huge, impressive trees with beautiful canopies and they dominate the landscape. But what they do is that they stunt the growth of all the other trees in the neighborhood, in the area, because they exude into the soil chemical called juglone. And so essentially, they thrive, but at the cost of all the other trees around. And so unfortunately for us, we sometimes encounter people who are, behave like walnut trees, and they suck up all the air from the room, and they essentially you know, dominate the environment, and they don't allow other people to thrive. So my favorite are walnut trees because it becomes a shorthand to discuss people with, in, a, in, a, in a kind of a playful way. Just recognizing, hey, that person's behaving like a walnut tree helps you diffuse the tension and the stress you might feel in dealing with that person.
1: I love the image of the walnut tree. You you have, I think, a whole chapter towards that. And, and it's such a, a lovely visual to think about this walnut tree and it encroaching on your space.
2: It's my editor's favorite oh, chapter. Oh, good.
1: That's good.
2: My editor yeah, loves that yeah, chapter. <laughs> you can
1: really visualize this thing encroaching on your space. And it's almost uncomfortable as you exactly. think about this. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. And then I come up with strategies of how you can, you know, uh, get out of the shade of that walnut tree. Like how do you deal with walnut trees? How do you handle them? How do you spot them? What are their, what are their characteristics? So, for example, a walnut tree is more likely to make a face-to-face mm-hmm. ask. We are 34 times more likely to say yes when we are asked the mm-hmm. face-to-face. So, walnut tree probably knows that and says, I will ask that mm-hmm. person face-to-face they will also insist on an immediate response. And all the research says, well, you know, you, we are not very good at responding in our best interest when we are under pressure in the moment. So we must always buy time. But a walnut tree takes away that, that you know, very often insists we need to make choice right now. The other thing walnut trees do is that they artificially create some sort of power dynamic. So they might call you to their office or to their home or buy you lunch, at which point they've created like this artificial powers dynamic where they are power more powerful in the moment. And then you're stuck. Oh my God, I'm confronted with this walnut tree. And now I have to mm. say yes. And so recognizing those and avoiding them are good strategies for yeah. us.
1: I think maybe you're going to ask the same question, Tim, so I might be butting him here. But tell us more about that relationship between power and the ability to say no. How is it that that changes with more powerful people?
2: Definitely people who, you know, if you think about why we say yes when we want to say no, it boils down to three main things. One is a concern for relationships. A concern for, rep- second thing is a concern for reputation. And the third is just the inability to bring those words together in a coherent manner. You're mm-hmm. just so flustered and frazzled that you have no idea how to do this. And so what, I, what I'm what i trying to move people from is from fr- flusters and frazzled to calm and choosy. <laughs> and you have to do that by, you know, Developing the strategies and putting yourself in a position where you feel empowered. So, you know, an, a powerful person can make you feel less powerful. But when you look inwards and think about what's driving you, what's important for you, that power can come from within to counter that power mm-hmm. dynamic.
0: It's That's so beautifully said and hard to do. But absolutely, uh, I think that that's a, a great lesson uh, from the book. Uh, you're also very passionate about the topic of compassionate self-control. Yes. Compassionate self-control. So could you first describe that and then, and then talk about, just tell us about compassionate self-control.
2: So I started working in the area of self-regulation and self-control um, right after my dissertation work. Uh, and... It was around that time that positive psychology was also becoming really big in the literature. And so I was seeing, you know, a whole bunch of literature that was talking about self-control. And the main mechanism for self-control was to manage the pull of pleasure through deprivation. Pull yourself away from that. Use your willpower and manage the pull of pleasure through your willpower. And you do that by depriving yourself of these options. And there was tons of research out there that also said that we are not very good to sustain willpower over the long run, right? It's hard. At some point, we're just going to give up, give up, give up, and then give in. And so I was really interested in ways in which we could think about and feel differently about our choices so that we feel motivated to do the right thing, make the self-controlled choice, but through a much more inward-looking lens, focusing on what we care about, our values, how we will feel, and and using that to uh, diminish the lure of that stimulus, that desirable stimulus. So I did a few papers in this regard. So the don't-can't paper is clearly one of them. The other one that we did was, you know, thinking about reframing how you think about a temptation. So let's say that, you know, there's chocolate cake in front of you. Most people who resist chocolate cake do it through a deprivation lens. They say, I feel really gi- I won't eat the chocolate cake because I'll feel really guilty for eating that cake. What we show is that it works, but you don't feel really good about it. And you're, you know, at some point you're going to just give in. But if you tell yourself I'm not eating the cake but I'm so proud of myself for not eating the cake. So we actually contrast and say when we think about how proud we are for not doing something we are more likely to sustain that choice over time and we are more likely to feel good about that. We we are good people, you know, I resisted that cake, it's great, uh, rather than feeling this negative energy. The Other paper that we worked on, which is something that I talk about in the book, is the paper on strategic procrastination and delay uh, with uh, with Nicole Mead. We published that in JPSP, which is uh, one of the top journals in psychology, or the top journal in psychology. And in that paper, we essentially showed that instead of telling ourselves, no, I can't have this, or tell yourself, I'll have it, but later so strategically postpone and what we showed is that when you tell your when in the heat of the moment if you tell yourself sure you can have it just not now you are less likely to have it at a later time rather than feeling that sense of deprivation and say no you can't have this so we basically and and you i kind of coin i kind of think about this intersection between positive psychology and the classic self-regulation literature uh, as compassionate Mm. self-control. It reminds me of Katie Milkman's
1: work. She talks a little bit about this similar concept in her book, How to Change. And she talks about, you Mm -hmm. know, when you're setting up a habit or routine, like an exercise regime, give yourself one or two uh, kind of, she doesn't call them this, but get, get out of jail free cards. You know, give yourself... if something comes up, you can step back from the exercise regime that day. And there's no guilt, there's no resetting. It reminds me of that. And you're more likely to then just continue on the next day. But it's also the feeling, what you were saying is you don't feel guilty. You don't feel awful that you've broken this habit, this daily habit. And I think that's what you're saying in in the similar vocabulary.
2: And and this and this forms uh, the uh, the uh, crux of this notion of personal policies mm. that I talk about mm. in the book as well, because most people when they are dealing with others and they they set up what I call boundaries. Boundaries are the response that we have mm-hmm. to others, and we set them up like barbed wire fences to protect ourselves from other people. Whereas I talk about personal policies, which are the simple rules that we make up for ourselves based on our own values and priorities and how we want to operate Mm -hmm. in the world. And so I think of these as these red velvet (laughs) ropes, you know, the stanchions that you see at a Trader Joe's or a movie theater. They're these red velvet ropes. They are pretty. They help guide us in the direction we want to go. But they are ours. We can change that direction whenever we choose. And, and, And I think that that is so much more empowering than Putting up boundaries that that to keep other people out, rather than we need these red velvet ropes that shape how we want to live in this world.
0: That's so beautifully said. What about the differences, societal differences, collective societies versus individualistic societies?
2: How I actually haven't gone there at all in the book.
0: Right. My guess, just the way that you're framing these, it, it feels like you've thought about it.
2: I certainly have, coming from a collectivist society <laughs> right myself. And,
0: and living in a highly individualistic society,
2: <laughs> yes, yes, you know, and and it was an interesting thing because i I did my I did a Fulbright exchange to uh, Indonesia, and I spent a f- fair amount of time talking to the people there. And while we find these policies and you know, empowered refusals so important over here in this country, We do see a very strong effect that women need it more than men, whereas in collectivist countries like India or Indonesia, everyone feels that they need these these strategies. It was really nice to see all the men saying, wow, I can use this. This is such an important idea. Because I think in a in in collectivist societies, you typically have much more concern for relationships amongst everybody. Mm-hmm. Everybody feels really a, a strong sense of a relationship. those strong relational mm-hmm. t- ties, and also the power dynamics are mm-hmm. much higher and stronger and so it was really interesting that when I was in Indonesia, people felt that this was important for both men and women Mm. to learn
0: wow thank you for sharing that
2: yeah i'd
1: love to talk more about the the, we've talked about it already the the idea that this is a gendered issue like you say that's not in your book and i love the this uh, thinking about it from a different angle that it's a gendered issue here in an individualistic society but not necessarily around the world how can we address this
2: are you talking about how do we become better yes. at empowered refusal? Because well, I have and you, three, and you yes. dedicate the so
1: basically your whole last chapter to the gender issue. You have a lot of research about how, uh, why, and how it is more difficult yes. for women. And you you've titled it "Harnessing Your Trailblazing Potential," which I love that title. Um, so yeah, just more about how 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 can women find this easier to to say no?
2: So essentially, the you know empowered refusal is a learned mm. skill. And so what I've shown with the book is that there, there's an entire section of the book that talks about the three competencies that we need to invest in to become better at empowered refusal. And the three competencies are the art of empowered refusal, mm-hmm. A-R-T, A standing for Awareness, self awareness, R standing for rules, not decisions, and T standing for totality of self. And with those three competencies, essentially, I'm saying that our first step before we can begin this journey is that we need to look inwards. We need to do a deep dive on ourselves, spend the time to reflect what are important priorities? How do I think about these things? What would I like my life to look like? So you know, I've guided people through a whole range of questions and issues you can think about. What are the trade-offs I have to make when I make these decisions? When I uh, can I calculate the opportunity cost of saying yes to one thing? When I can, when what is the opportunity cost of saying yes? So once you have deepened self-awareness, then you can use that self-awareness to construct these rules that help guide your actions and decisions. So I call these rules personal policies. And these personal policies, as I said, are the way you want to operate in the world. They are your rules. You set them up. And they can be rules that you set up for yourself, which are like self-talk. You know, I don't eat chocolate cake or I don't touch my phone when I drive. or, Or it could be rules for others, which is between eight and nine in the morning, I need to work on getting a Getting a handle on my day. And so I don't take meetings between eight and nine in the morning. So you need to communicate those rules to other people. And the last competency is T, the totality of self. Learning to leverage in our communication, not only the verbal skills, but the nonverbal skills. Because nonverbal skills can be really powerful in maintaining relationships, showing empowerment. And we very often neglect those nonverbal skills. And even though we can say the words, we leak power through our nonverbals. And so it's important for us to kind of learn and invest in the nonverbal skills that accompany an empowered refusal.
0: It's just poetry. <laughs> we leak power through our nonverbal skills. I, I I just love that. So this is so much fun, but I have to turn have to turn the page and talk a little bit about music. We need to we need to hear about some of your musical preferences, especially uh, in the case that you might be stranded on a desert island for a year. Hmm. So let's imagine that you are stranded on the desert island for a year, but you're able to have two musical artist catalogs with you. Now, so it's not just one song, it's the whole whole catalog. What okay. two musical artists would you take with you?
2: Oh my, that's a tough one. And so I'm going to tell you the things that I grew up with because uh, it reminds me of home and my family. So my mom, whenever she did any housework, she blasted Uh. music on the gramophone. (laughs) And so I I love your mom already.
0: (laughs) Wow. She's got double bonus points for me. Holy
2: smokes. (laughs) So when I think about when you said that I'm going to be alone on a desert island I can bring company with me through those mm. memories. And so, the, so I'll, I'll choose the two albums that she would have chosen. One would be Phantom of the Opera. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so she was a huge fan okay. of musical theater, of musical opera and musical theater. Okay. And the other one would be Elvis Presley because I love to wow. dance.
0: There's a lot of toe-tapping music <laughs> with Elvis. Yes, Yes, there is.
2: I'm dating myself with my musical choices. (laughs) I should have probably said Beyonce. Oh, your desert
1: island. There's no one there to judge you.
2: Yeah, Yeah. my daughter is an official Swiftie. Oh, Oh, she
0: is. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Have you taken her to uh, to see Taylor Swift?
2: We did not. Uh, but I think it's definitely on the cards. <laughs> okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: it's it, it's going to happen at some point in the future.
2: Definitely, so you, yeah, you mentioned fantastic. a
0: lot
1: in the you mention a lot of quotes from books and and famous people, and, and you actually mm-hmm. pose the question in the book. And I almost want to pose it back to you: of Do you have a famous quote or a famous saying from a movie or a a song that you carry in your head that motivates you? You illustrate this point with Colin Powell's story of his uh, he's got a famous movie that he quoted in his head so I Mm -hmm, want to pose mm -hmm. the question back to you maybe it's a song or something maybe maybe an Elvis Presley song
2: that uh, in our house we often you know we have very much a culture of being of excellence and being at our best and so we use a lot (laughs) of phrases so for example it goes the way you say Mm. I'm not sure where it comes from but i think it's it's really important to kind of use the, your language mm-hmm. carefully and and say things that are positive so that we walk we mm-hmm. walk the talk so so we definitely say it goes the way you say a lot there's a beautiful book called the four agreements mm-hmm. that i really love and and one of the agreements is something about very, being very true to your like um, your word matters, but I'm forgetting what that phrase is. But if if you say you're going to do it, then Integrity. do it, kind of thing. Yeah, uh, and that's very much something that we think about. Uh, the one that I that I embody every time I enter a space is I want to leave a space better than mm, I found it. I love that. So so I definitely I'm very much a quotes person. In fact, one of the things that my editor has made because there are so many quotes in the book are a set of quote cards oh, wow. oh. that uh, that that we can that you can put on your I love desk that. I'm happy to have have her send you a set if I have your addresses so if you email me your addresses you will get oh, a set of quote I love cards. that behind
1: my camera behind my laptop right now I've got a collage of pictures that are mostly all quotes that I find inspiring so I love the idea of being inspired by other people's words and
2: Right, because I felt that, you know, to be able to practice saying no more effectively, you need reminders Mm -hmm. in your environment to say, well, you know, I need to have this visual reminder about saying no. So, for example, you know, that one of the quote cards say no is a complete sentence or, you know, you are the trustee of your own life. So these are all the things that Mm -hmm. are in the book, but we put them into quote cards so that you can have a set that you can display on your desk. I, I love that
1: way of a little uh, a compliment to the book as well. It's a great idea. Yes.
0: Is We Leak Power Through Our Nonverbal <laughs> Skills one of them as well?
2: You need to no. make no. one Poetry, Vanessa Just for,
0: poetry, just Vanessa. for
2: Yeah Just for that's, me that's just...
0: Oh my god <laughs> I, I just, will,
2: I will It literally It's just like
0: It sends this lovely chill up my spine It's just mm. so beautiful And so
2: Aww.
0: Uh, it, It's fa- That's fantastic Thank you Oh my gosh Vanessa Patrick It is such a joy to have you as a guest Thank you
2: This was such fun Thank you
3: Welcome to our Grooving Session, where Tim, Mary, and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Vanessa, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our Just Say No brains. Just say no, man. Just say no. You guys didn't say no, so that's why I'm here, because I really wanted to be part of the Grooving Session. What if we said no? What if we just say no? Then (laughs) you didn't. You didn't. And and I know I missed the interview, and I apologize, uh, but... uh, Gosh, this was a great interview you guys did. I'm, I'm I'm worried about my job, so that's why I had to come in be part of the grooving <laughs> session.
0: Well, there it's a terrific go. book. Doctor Patrick did a, did a great job. Vanessa is really just such a delightful person and terrific con- contribution to this this literature. So, Mary, where would you want to start? Well, Let, let's just. I
1: think we got to start talking about empowered refusal, what that is, and and how it's so useful. And I love the part that she said that a no stems from your identity. I, I know that stems from your identity is a much more empowered no. How did you take that?
0: This conversation really resonated Mm-mm. with you, but why was why was that important to you?
1: I think because it involved a lot of introspection. She talks about this in the book. She talks a lot about looking inwards, about what your values are and and what what is important to you and making that a priority. So I think when you align... When you're introspective and look at, at what you want to prioritize, outwardly, that's easier uh, to say no mm-hmm. to the, th- the things that don't align with that.
3: Yeah, Tim. When you think when you think about empowered refusals and this idea of identity, what does
0: it mean for you? Mary tipped it off. Uh, Mary used the word uh, introspection, and I would use the word uh, intentionality. Mm. I think that there's just something about being, and, and it, when we pair it with sort of a thoughtfulness, for me, this was so much about be intentional about your life. Just don't hop in the stream and just get dragged along with you know with whatever the current is. Choose your path. Right? be be thoughtful. be intentional about it, because sometimes you want to sit on the on the the riverbank and sometimes you <laughs> want to be in the stream. Sometimes you want to be in different parts of the river. I think that uh, okay, I'm, I'm I'm milking that metaphor probably <laughs> way too much. but what I what, doing a great job on the metaphor, Tim. I, I, oh. but Vanessa's book, to me uh, is really about this uh, reinforcing the sense of intentionality.
3: You guys, it's interesting because when you think about this, as much about when we say yes as when we say Mm. no to a certain degree, it's about, as you guys both have talked about, uh, introspection or the intentionality of, all right, what do I want to do versus what I don't want to do? Mm -hmm. And just making sure you understand that it gets into, you know, the idea of. Making sure we're aware of that, and Tim, I loved. I actually do like your your stream analogy because it is a very good one. So, <laughs> so what else did you guys? I mean, you guys were the ones who who had the great conversation with her. What else did you you find really interesting? In this?
1: well, what I what you were just saying, Kurt, ties in with something that I really enjoyed from the book, and she touches on it in the interview. Is the framework that she comes up with? It's kind of a cost benefit analysis. And it is a framework for saying not just no, but when to say yes and actually breaking down. Some things are really easy to say no or yes to. Like if somebody says pass the salt, that's not a cost to us. Like the benefit is that somebody else will have a really nice meal and it'll be seasoned the way they want it. So just pass the salt. No,
3: I'm not passing the salt to you. I don't want that. That doesn't align with my identity. No. Tim will have to pass the salt. I'll
1: pass the salt. (laughs) Thanks, Tim. But, and and then i love i love the way she phrases it in the book like there's another one that says make your famous lasagna you know if there's a potluck if there's a you know a, a party yeah. coming up so like, oh so you make the best lasagna you should make it and bring it along well actually the the benefit to the party is pretty minimal because there's going to be a whole host of food so don't put the effort into making the lasagna unless you want to but of course there are some things that are a big cost but also a big benefit. And those are the things you do mm-hmm. want to say yes to. Yes, it's going to be a big ask for you, but it's going to pay off. So say yes to those things and think about what you're saying yes to for the other things that are costly.
0: Yeah, that framework is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I love that, again, this this reinforces this idea of intentionality. Mm-hmm. Just just choose when you want to say yes and when you want to say no. Um, I, I also had to say that, that there was something uh, you know we've we've had some really wonderful conversations in the past with guests about similar issues mm-hmm. of of what what it's like to be in front of someone else and to to say no. and And so, I thought it might be worth just talking a little bit about some of our past guests and sort of the counterpoints mm-hmm. or the the other sides of these these issues. And And I just wanted to start with Vanessa Bonds,
1: mm.
0: who was our guest in in episode two fifty three. Kurt, you—I think you happened to be around for that one, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, uh, I was right. But but her thesis in in her book, you have more influence than you think, is about sort of understanding that it is harder to to say no than we anticipate, uh, right? Uh-huh. We we sort of expect that oh, I can say no to anybody. I'm you know. I'm superhero, you know, Super Tim's, you know, and I can say no to anybody. But in person, one to one, when you get faced with that, it's just really hard to say no. Uh-huh. And it's really interesting,
3: particularly when uh, you know Professor Bonds brings up the, uh, you know, would you, you when you when asked, would you give your uh, phone to a stranger and let them give them the access code to it? And everybody said hell no i would not do that but when they actually came and somebody asked them to can i give can you have your phone <laughs> and will you you know open it up for me there was like a 90 some percent did so this idea of saying no even when we think that we won't is is something that is very hard and difficult for us and so i think that's a really key piece and it's part of what you know Professor Patrick and you guys talked about, is that it's not always easy to say no, but if, if you identify, if you bring it into your identity, it becomes a little bit easier, from what I understand.
1: Mm. The other thing that Vanessa, I really liked about Vanessa's interview in her book, uh, sorry, Vanessa Bonds, this is getting confusing because Vanessa Patrick and Vanessa Bonds. Dr. Bonds, the more you have more influence than you think. One, it is exactly what it says in the title and particularly in positions of power. And sometimes we don't even realize we're in positions of power was one of her takeaways. But we, ha- we influence people around us by what we do. And sometimes that influence isn't visual. People don't give us feedback or people don't say anything, but we can have an influence without realizing. So by saying no, by speaking up more and, and standing up for our values and what matters to us, That will be noticed. People around us take notice of that. And particularly if we're in a position of power in a company, in an organization, or even, you know, volunteer work, or even within our families, people notice that. And they are more likely to then think about themselves and think, oh, hold on. Well, she said no to this request. Does that mean I can say no to requests when people ask me?
3: Which is really interesting, Mary, because that goes back to uh, Christina Bicchieri, mm-hmm. who we interviewed, about social norms and this idea that in some situations, the social norm is that we don't say no. We don't say no to those types of requests, but by actually saying no, you can you can adjust that social norm to
0: a certain degree. Is that, mm-hmm. Mr. Houlihan, would you agree, disagree with me? Yeah, it, uh, yeah. I, I love the way Christina sort of informs us that we are part of the social norm. Like the things that we do, and, and I think that this is what both Vanessas are saying, actually, uh, is that we see this in, in, in both uh, Dr. Patrick and Dr. Bonds, is that we can influence the social norm in a positive way. We, I mean, Im- imagine that it might become the norm when, when you say, no, I'm not going to make my famous lasagna, and no one gets disgruntled. Mm. Everybody's just cool <laughs> with it. Well, and what's other, what's also interesting about this and what you guys are both
3: saying goes back to a conversation, Tim, that you and I had with Linda Babcock, right? This idea of the no club, this idea that women, there is a social norm for women to uh, be part of certain things, these non-promotable tasks at work. And that the idea of the social norm needs to be broken around that because uh, we women just don't uh, have that power that, or they think they don't have that power to say no, and they really need to be saying no more. Mm-hmm.
1: Often. I think this is one reason why Vanessa Patrick's book really struck me because she dedicates a whole chapter at the end of the book to this being essentially a gendered issue. I mean, women do find it harder. Women, people who are empathetic, are more likely to put themselves in the shoes of the asker, and generally, stereotypically that is associated with a woman's personality more. So women are more likely to put themselves in the position of the asker and then say yes. So this is a a problem that women find harder, is just saying no to those requests. And Linda Babcock's work, she's, uh, Vanessa Patrick cites it a lot in her book, is we uh, women say yes to tasks that they don't want to say yes to. They don't want to organize the Christmas party or... or <laughs> <No>. <laughs> No, but the expe- <laughs> who does? Yeah, the expectation <laughs> is that it's the woman in the room who will say yes, or because you did it last year, you obviously enjoyed it. So why don't you do it again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. And, and changing it, that it, it, expectation uh, isn't just the role of women, it's the expectation, it, it's the role of men in the room as well to stop expecting women to be the one to say yes.
0: Well, uh, of course, that's really central to this whole story, right? Is it's not just that, that women are, are in a position of, of needing to say no, it's that there are men who are putting them in that position mm-hmm. yes, to, to say no. Um, and so I, I, think, I think Linda even said she, she didn't write the book for women, she wrote okay. the book for men mm-hmm. to kind of yeah. wake up. And, and, and there is that sense with Dr. Patrick's uh, work as well.
1: One of my biggest takeaways from Linda Babcock's book last year was that in a in a committee room, if there's women in the room, they're more likely to say yes. They're more likely to be expected to say yes. If the room only contains men, there's no women in the room, men volunteer. They put their hand up yep. and say yes. <laughs> but as soon as you put a woman in the room, the expectation is that she w- she'll be the one that does it. So it's not that men can't do it. It's not that men won't put their hand up. It's just the addition of a woman changes it, the changes the tone.
3: It goes back to that social norm that Christina B. talks about, and I think that's really important. Uh, one piece, although I did not get to talk with with uh, Dr. Patrick, I I did read the book, and one of the pieces in the book that I just found absolutely intriguing. Um, she has a number of different scales in there that you can take your kind of a self assessment on your concern for social or for relationships and uh, empathy uh, uh, and <laughs> other pieces. And uh, um, I do have to say, Mr. Houlihan and I, we scored very high on those. So it's <laughs> yes. hard for us to say no. It really it, it is one of those things, too. Mary, you as well? Yeah.
1: Yeah, totally. Uh, terrible yeah. at saying no. Terrible at like, thinking the words to say no. Uh, all, yeah. all the questions, yeah.
3: So <sighs> listeners, go out and buy the book. It's a great book. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so with that, I think... Uh, We can just remind groovers that saying no uh, to things can be healthy way of adding positive
0: value to your lives. And we should also thank groovers for listening, for just being a part of this behavioral science community, for being a groover. Just thank you so much for that. Promoting the application of behavioral science in your work and your home life, it can just lead to a better life, a better groove, maybe even a better culture. Mm -hmm. So thanks for being out there and doing that.
1: Well said, Tim. And as the show's producer, I'd love to hear what you think about it. Share with us on social media. If you listen to this episode, if you read Vanessa's book, she loves feedback. She was telling that at the end of the interview. So just send us an email, shout out on social media. We'd love to hear from you.
0: Uh, Please do. And with that, we hope that a little bit of empowered refusal in your life this week might go a long way to help you find your groove.